protests and pushback. This is happening. We have children as young as six years old being taught radical leftist gender theory. Florida lawmakers head into the final stretch. The most controversial bills head to the governor. They are making life-changing decisions for children without the involvement of the parent. Censorship of entire groups of people. Voter security or voter suppression? Then shame me to the Republican Party. What will the new election police investigate? Time to take advantage of this unique opportunity. The congressman calls it quits for a new beginning. Miami's top cop is no longer interim. Right now we just have a lot of healing to do. I was really living not only hidden, physically, but hidden mentally. Living Legacy, a personal Holocaust story for future generations. From South Florida to Tallahassee. The big news and newsmakers live this week in South Florida. Good morning, I'm Glenna Milberg at the State Capitol. And I'm Michael Putney, glad to have you with us. It has been a busy week in the state capitol where Glenna is, and the pace is only going to pick up because there's only one week left now in this annual legislative session. Actually, lawmakers are, as you know, debating and voting on literally hundreds of bills, but the very few that are the most divisive and controversial, they're the ones getting all the attention. So many bad bills up here. A night vigil outside the Capitol went on as inside the Florida Senate passed the controversial 15-week limit on terminating pregnancies, as the House did two weeks before. I think 15 weeks as far as the Supreme Court will let us go. Now it heads for the governor's signature. These are protections for, for babies that have heartbeats, that can feel pain. Redistricting maps head to the governor who says expect his veto. A sweeping election security bill passed the Senate. We're just trying to beef it up. It's less than the governor asked for, though sets up a new elections investigation team he did ask for, and with an amendment sparked by Local 10's reporting into voters finding their party affiliations changed without their permission. Those trying to grow rooftop solar power lost House lawmakers to the utilities. They voted to give FPNL a sliding cost cut in buying power from citizens who generate solar. Some admitting they probably did need more data. And the Senate gave the governor his request for tighter immigration rules targeting companies who transport undocumented minors and so-called sanctuary cities. So coming up is do or die week here to get all of those bills out of both chambers and to the governor. But really the big elephant in the room today and all for the rest of the foreseeable 48 hours is the budget. That is why the Capitol is open today. Budget uh, budget negotiations do go on here and the Senate is and the House. They are negotiating through the weekend. Glenn, one of the most divisive bills, as you know, in this session is going to go to the Senate floor tomorrow. Its goal is to ensure the rights of parents to have the final say in their kids' education, prevent schools, however, from teaching children about sexual orientation and gender identity in the early grades. That is what led opponents of that bill to dub the bill Don't Say Gay. And there were so many protests, crowds of people, so many people who went in committee meetings 
pleading with lawmakers to oppose the bill. State Representative Joe Harding of Williston, he is the Republican in the House that shepherded the Parents' Rights in Education bill through the House. It is The House did approve it. It will be now going to the Senate this week. And Representative Harding joins us to talk about the bill, what it is, what it isn't, and what we can expect. Representative Harding, it is so good to have you with us. Thank you. So the essence of the bill, if you read it, and people need to read this bill to see what it does and doesn't do, but the essence is parents' rights. Parents having the say and the, um, the say or not on what their children are learning in school. And yet it talks about specifically sexual orientation and gender and that kind of conversation and curriculum that may not be had in K through three. So I guess my first question to you is, practically speaking, is this bill even necessary? Does that kind of controversy even happen? Well, thank you for having me on again. And yes, the, the reason that the bill exists is because we've had specific examples where this type of instruction has happened in Florida schools and it doesn't take, you don't have to go very far just to start listening to um, local school board meetings in some counties, even in counties like Palm Beach County where they've had an issue with this. Um, but yes, this, this has been an issue where there has been instruction as young as kindergarten on teaching gender theory and gender identity. And so the reason that's part of the bill is that the overall bill is about empowering parents, about critical decisions shouldn't happen without a parent knowing and at the same time, we address this issue specifically because this issue has occurred in our schools. Yeah. Representative Harding, it's Michael Putney in Miami, and thank you again so much for joining us today. You know, the knock against you and your bill is that it is said to be discriminatory against the LGBTQ community. Do you discriminate in this bill against them? Absolutely not. What we are doing is empowering parents at, at the same time as saying that there's some instruction that's not uh, gender, that's not appropriate at certain ages. Teaching um, and having a standard of what is appropriate does not discriminate. In fact, what it does do is it gives some guardrails to teachers so teachers understand what, what's expected, some guardrails to the district, and at the same time empower the parents, whether the parents are are gay parents, whether the parents are heterosexual parents, the parents need to be engaged regardless of what they look like. So representative here in Tallahassee, not only in committees, but the protests that we've seen almost daily somewhere, um, you've heard countless people really bearing some really personal pain about how they've been discriminated against. You've heard some real fear about what may happen if this bill becomes law, uh, whether or not you think you agree with that or you, you think that's off base. Uh, you've seen this pretty sincere outpouring. And I was wondering, how do you hear that? Are, are you affected by that one way or the other? What do you what do you answer to that? Oh, there's two parts. I hear it. Uh, number one is I feel bad for those kids because they're being lied to. They're being lied to by special interest groups that have words like equality and words like that in their title um, that are using them as a political pawn to further their agenda 
at which leads to social media clicks media outrage we've seen dozens and dozens of stories last night we saw on saturday night live a skit that had no truth in it whatsoever you know even a um, any journalist could pick apart uh, their skit and how un unbased it was. So number one is I feel sorry for the kids that are being used as a political um, ploy by groups that, that have a name that says that they're there to help them, but they're not, number one. Number two is as a parent, it wakes me up to the concerns that I have in our school district. Um, it doesn't, you don't have to go very far to look at some of the pictures and the videos that came out of the Capitol this week and hear the words that some of these students were saying where they are cussing at lawmakers in a, in a public building that we should respect the process and we have to do better. And when we see um, adults that are part of the school system that are there with those students do nothing to stop it, we watch lawmakers um, participate with them and do nothing to say, hey, this isn't appropriate, the language you're using isn't appropriate. That should wake us up as parents to, in our school districts, that that type of behavior is deemed acceptable yeah. and that we're not, that, that, that should be an alarm bell for us at the same time. Number one is, you know, sorry that these kids uh, are being used um, for, to further an agenda. And at the same time, as parents, we gotta wake up to what is being taught to our kids where it is deemed acceptable for minors um, to use cuss words at our governor, you know, whether you like him or not, that is not appropriate okay, for children. We're, and, and and representative, we're kind of, representative, excuse me, we're kind of getting into the weeds here. I would point out that Saturday Night Live deals in satire. We're dealing here in facts and trying to understand your bill. During the course of the legislative hearings, uh, dozens of people came up and testified, including many young men and women who said, when I was in grade school or high school, middle school, um, I confided my sexual orientation, my confusion about my identity to a teacher or counselor, and they saved my life. The fact that I could talk about it at school, because I couldn't talk about it at home, made a huge difference to me. Now, if this bill passes, the ability of those young men and women to do that will be limited, won't it? No, no, no nowhere in the bill are we limiting a conversation. All we say is that if, the school district is going to make critical decisions based on uh, changing a name of a student, changing the identity of a student. At that point, they need to get the parent involved. And there's also a safety valve in the bill that where we talk about that if if the if there's a reasonable person that believes that that this could do harm to the student, then we have a process for that, which already exists in state statute. And our bill just clarifies that that still exists. And so. Nowhere in the bill do we limit them have, being able to confide to someone at the school. That's the biggest misconception of the bill, and it's just not, it's not in the words on the page. So, Representative, let me pick up on that and with a specific case of someone, who, a mother, who had testified here. She's actually involved in a lawsuit against her school district because her trans daughter had counselors and support at school that, that kept all of that from this mother. Um, at the daughter's request. And so the school in, in that case, I suppose, would be keeping a student's privacy at the student's request, but from her parents, who obviously this young woman thought her parents would not be accepting and maybe feared the consequences. So as, as hard as that is on a parent, and, and our hearts go out to this mother who didn't know these things going on, is there a way for students who do want to keep private from their parents for whatever those reasons might be? 
it does that bill well, allow that to happen? In that specific example, that's just simply not the, the report you just gave is simply not the facts of that story. If you listen to the testimony, the mother knew um, that the daughter was having questions on her uh, gender and on her sexual orientation. She knew that. In fact, the, the mother reached out, who is, by the way, a mental health counselor for a living, reached out to the school district and said, hey, this is going on. We're having conversations with our daughter. We want you to know this is happening. The school district decided to take it on itself um, to meet with this with this minor, this 12-year-old girl, with three adults, exclude the parents, and make decisions. Whether we say that the this the minor made the decision or not, if you put my child in a room with three adults, I could probably get that child to say or agree to almost anything. I mean, that's just the reality. And that meeting happened. And the and the mother of that daughter who was on the record who said this, she's the one that talked to the school district first, and the school district did this so that that type of reporting that the school district was trying to help the daughter and the daughter was looking for help that is just simply not true the school district reached out to the daughter after the conversation the mother had representative harding okay we, I, and before, i'd like to I, I, may i just follow up on that because that and and thank you for that clarification but the question really is if there is such a, an instance when a student asks the school to, for their privacy against their parents. Is that allowed in this bill? Would that be lawful in this bill if that occurred? Again, that was asked numerous times in committees on the floor. The answer is right now, under current Florida statute, if a person at the school district believes that, that, that a student would be bullied or harmed at home because of disclosing something to the parent, um, that is currently allowed and in the bill we actually expand that we say that a reasonably prudent person would believe that disclosing information would lead to abuse abandonment or neglect it's in our bill it's there the protections are there um, but it's but again at the same time it's the adult in the room the school district employees job to be the person that understands that just because a student says that my dad's going to be upset well my dad's going to be upset if i get bad grades and, and a, an adult has to be the person that understands, okay, what does that mean? Who are their parents? Let me think about that. I've, I've interacted with them before. That's where, and, and again, it's in the bill, the protections there. Yeah. And at the same time, I encourage the school districts to make sure that they're not doing what is easy, which is just uh, taking everything they hear at face value and withholding information from, right. cho from, from parents. We're seeing that happen um, in a numerous areas and that's just simply not acceptable. Yeah. Representative Joe Harding, we are so glad to have you on our program. Thanks for presenting your point of view. Fairness dictated it, and we're glad we did it. Thanks very much. Thank you. All right, voter security or voter suppression, those are the two sides of a big debate going on over a new election reform bill passed the Senate this week. Florida Secretary of State Laura Lee will join us to talk about it next. Welcome back to this special edition of This Week in South Florida from Tallahassee and South Florida. This week, the Senate passed that big election security bill that the governor wanted, though with some tweaks to it that he might not have. It includes a $2.5 million investigative office of election crimes and security. Florida Secretary of State is Laurel Lee. She is going to head the administration of this new election law, and she is joining us live from Tallahassee. Secretary Lee, great to see you today. Thanks for joining us. 
Good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you. All right, uh, Secretary Lee, uh, as you well know, this passed the Senate, Senate Bill 524, passed 2315, creates this new election security office uh, to look into election fraud. Of course, there are state attorneys in every district throughout Florida, plus local police departments, FDLE, uh, to look into election fraud, and they do it. So why do we need this new election security office? Well, this office is a very important step forward for the Department of State and Florida voters. We already have the statutory responsibility to ensure that our elections laws in our state are being followed. And what this office will do is give us the tools, the resources, and the personnel to ensure that we're discharging those responsibilities effectively. Uh, it's important to know that this does not give the department new responsibilities, and it won't change what the voter sees on election day. It will just allow us to continue our partnerships with state and local law enforcement and ensure that our voters are kept protected and that their ballots are secure. So, Secretary, there have been a lot of back and forth about whether elections are already secure, whether there really is fraud going on. But as you know, Local 10 has uh, for three months now been reporting on pretty solid evidence that there have been a, a pattern. There has been a pattern of voters who had their party affiliations changed without their knowledge and against their wishes. Uh, the vice chair of the Senate's Ethics and Election Committee, Annette Tadeo, had written your office to request an investigation into that. So can you update us on where your office is in that investigation? Well, we take all allegations of election fraud or fraud against Florida's voters very seriously. And we are working with uh, law enforcement now to ensure that we get the facts and that all appropriate action is taken in response to that situation. Unfortunately, this is not the first time that we have heard allegations such as this. In fact, complaints about these voter registration organizations are common. We hear them every year about information being changed uh, without a voter's consent. Uh, and so one of the things that we want to do at the department, and one of the reasons why uh, we believe the Office of Election Crimes and Security is very important, is ensure that where this happens, that uh, it, it's brought to justice. Um, our department has responsibilities that extend far beyond what we see on election day and include ensuring that these voter registration organizations or organizations that are pursuing ballot initiatives and soliciting uh, citizen signatures, that all of them are doing that in a way that is following our laws and protecting our voters uh, from that interaction. Yeah, uh, the Secretary Lee, uh, this bill has gone through several iterations in the legislative process, the way that all bills do. Uh, the initial size of this office, as proposed by the governor, was going to be 52 people and, uh, you know, six, more than $6 million. Now it's been pared down. Is it at an effective size to, to do this work, to look into uh, election fraud? Well, to be sure, Governor DeSantis is leading the way on elections integrity and in really ensuring that at the department, we have resources to carry forward and continue the success that we saw in 2020. Um, we're grateful at the department for any resources or additional staff that are given to us for this important work. 
right now uh, we don't have any investigators or analysts at the department so we rely entirely upon our law enforcement partners uh, we're very proud of our partnerships there they've been really critical to ensuring that you know not only that our election day is kept secure but also that we're making investments and in reviewing our cybersecurity and our infrastructure all year round uh, but this would allow us to do even more uh, to be good partners to them and to be prepared for election day Secretary, I want to go back to the third-party voter registration organizations. There are hundreds of them. Anyone can find them right there on the State of Florida website, authorized by your office to do so. Uh, there's, authorities have pretty solid evidence of whoever might, be, might have done at least the party switches that have been made public now. Um, and, and I understand this might be a case for the future election security department, but here and now, there, there is fraud apparently going on. So I'm wondering, um, take us through how you investigate and what consequences would these third parties have? And the third parties and the Republican Party of Florida has been named in some of these reports, actually contract with contractors, canvassers, and, and might have plausible deniability. Uh, so how do you go and find out about the canvassers and those contracted companies? And, and I really would like to give our viewers some kind of comfort that, that you're on this and that this is not gonna be happening again. Well, I'll, I'll start here. As uh, prior to being Secretary of State, I, I, I was a judge and a former prosecutor. So I'll start by saying, of course, that uh, you know investigations are ongoing, and and we never draw conclusions about what the facts and evidence we're going to show uh, until that case has an investigation has come to completion. And right now, uh, that specific case is with our law enforcement partners uh, who are conducting that investigation. What I can say is that at the at the high level, we care tremendously about election integrity and also ensuring that our voters are protected from any unscrupulous third party organizations, uh, whether they be working on voter registration drives or working on constitutional uh, petition amendments. We do know in the last year that uh, misuse of voter information in pursuit of constitutional amendments was rampant. And in some cases, uh, voters' names were used who didn't sign petitions, and we even had signatures forged. So this is a key priority for the department, for Governor DeSantis and our legislature, which is why you see such a focus this year in ensuring that we're devoting the resources that we need to protecting our voters' identities. So it's something that we take very seriously, and we're very committed to ensuring that those who are here in our state that are interacting with our voters are doing so in the appropriate way. We have many options for voters to get registered, and we wanna be sure that anybody who's eligible to vote has the opportunity to do so, uh, and that we're getting that registration done in time for them to participate on election day. Yeah, Laurel Lee on the job, Secretary of State, our Chief Election Officer in the state. Secretary Lee, thank you very much for your time this, today. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right, next, a surprise announcement this week from one of South Florida's veteran members of Congress. Ted Joyce said he's taking a career change, and the congressman will join us next. And welcome back. 
Congressman Ted Deutsch has been a fixture in Florida politics for two decades. So it was a surprise, a surprise to me anyway, when he announced this week that he is going to resign, not run for re-election when Congress recesses in October. He's going to become the CEO of the American Jewish Committee, AJC. Congressman Deutsch joins us now from home where he is recovering from a case of COVID-19. Congressman, glad to see you. How are you feeling? Uh, feeling much better. Thanks very much. It's, uh, it's good to be with you. It's good to be with you both. Well, we are so glad you are, too. Congressman, um, I'm sorry, Glenna. He, she's greeting you as well. Congressman, let me ask you, uh, you were all but guaranteed re-election. If you had chosen to run and you've been, you're finishing your seventh term in the House of Representatives, what were the factors that uh, made you say, no, I'm not going to go back? Uh, well, I love, I, Michael, I love the job uh, more than anything else. I love representing the people of South Florida. It's such a um, such a special community that we live in and that I'm so privileged to represent. Uh, the fact is, I wasn't thinking about leaving, but this opportunity presented itself uh, to focus full time on a global level on issues that I'm really passionate about and that I know matter to so many people in South Florida, too, and that's fighting anti-Semitism and defending Israel and defending the global Jewish community, there are real challenges uh, that, that we're grappling with in Congress and, and there, uh, there are real threats, ongoing threats to the community. This seems like an opportunity that will give me a, a chance to, to really do even more. And it, it was a hard, hard decision, uh, but I'm excited about the transition. Congressman, we know that's true just from the amount of times that we've been working with you and reporting on you, and we'll, we'll talk about that uh, more in depth, but um, just to pick up on what Michael was saying, this you become the 31st Democrat to not seek re-election in Congress, uh, the fourth from Florida, as a matter of fact. It, it seems like there's a little bit of an exodus. Is that an exodus? No, look, I, as I've tried to explain to people, I'm not running away from Congress. I, I, I think that um, the things are going to go better in November than people think. But regardless of how it works out, I've served in the majority. I've served in the minority. I'm proud of the record that I have. I'm not running from Congress. I'm running to this opportunity to, to really stand up and lead the uh, the effort to, to strengthen the global Jewish community at a time when the challenges are so great. So yeah. that's that's what's driving me. Yeah, well, uh, it's clearly a very good fit with you and the AGC, which I personally know and respect. It does great work around the world. But let's go back to pure politics here. Uh, sure. Congressman, uh, you are the chairman of the House Ethics Committee. It's a great compliment to you that your colleagues, both sides of the aisle, made you the chair of that committee. You also chair the House Foreign Relations Subcommittee on the Middle East. Now, if you had been reelected and if Republicans take control of the House, you would have lost those chairmanships. Did that factor in, into your thinking? No, uh, not at all. As I said before, Michael, I've, I have actually served in the minority and as you know, as, as you and Glenn and I served uh, under my good friend, Ileana ross Layton when she was right. chair of, of the, the committee. So, and we worked really closely together because the issues that matter really matter to everyone. They're not partisan issues in the foreign affairs area. Just look at what's happening now in Ukraine. So that, that didn't really have anything to do with it. 
And um, uh, and I I would have continued on doing the same sort of work uh, that I've been doing since I've been in Congress, trying to work across the aisle and and address the needs that that the community wants me to focus on. Congressman, as long as you brought up Ukraine, I would like to talk about your, your new position, anti-Semitism, the rise of Hitler, in the context of Ukraine right now. And it's been kind of floating around in my head, watching this horror and heartache in real time on social media, what's going on. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your thoughts on if we could have done that 70 years ago, if we could have watched the rise of Hitler in real time. Now with hindsight, what should the U.S. have been doing? What should the U.S. be doing now in that context? Well, the, the one thing that's, I think, very clear from, from this is it's a reminder that when someone tells us what they intend to do, that we have to take it seriously. And by the way, that's true for Putin in Ukraine and it's true for the supreme leader in Iran uh, as we pivot uh, possibly next week uh, to, to focus on, on Iran and their pursuit of nuclear weapons. Look, going forward in Ukraine, uh, we have to continue to do what, what we have done. I think President Biden uh, has, and I was, I was in Munich for the security conference and I saw the impact that, that, that uh, the president's leadership has had in really bringing together the Western world to stand against Vladimir Putin uh, and to stand with the people of Ukraine. There's just no question Putin didn't expect the resolve to be as great as it's been. He didn't expect the unified uh, approach to targeting him, the oligarchs around him, the Russian economy. Uh, all of that has had a significant impact. We need to do more. We shouldn't be importing any Russian oil. Uh, we should be working to make sure that we're shutting down uh, every uh, country who's importing uh, Russian oil, shut down that export from Russia altogether. Uh, we should be working with more businesses so that they uh, they walk away from Russia, just as we saw Visa and MasterCard do over the weekend. That there is. Uh, there is so much that we need to do to increase the pressure. Uh, I was on a call yesterday with President Zelensky and, and a number of my colleagues. Uh, he spoke about the need for airplanes so that they could further and better defend themselves. And I think we should be, uh, we should be focused on that. So there is a lot more that we could be doing. And then just the one thing, Michael and Glenn, I would say that the beauty of, uh, of the American response is that, that people have really stepped up to be there for the Ukrainian people. And we should be supporting what is already and will continue to be a massive humanitarian crisis going forward yeah. as well. Uh, agreed. The outpouring of support in South Florida across the country and across the world have been just uh, astounding and well-deserved. Congressman Ted George, great to speak with you. And uh, until you go to work for the AJC, we will be asking you some pointed questions uh, for your role as a member <laughs> of Congress. Thanks very and, much. And, and as, as you know, I always look forward to that. Thank you both for having me. Sure enough. All right. Thank next. You. Next, Miami has a permanent police chief again. He's a veteran of the force and of the swirling Miami politics, and uh, Manny Morales is next. Miami has a new police chief. 
Manny Morales can now remove the word interim from his name. He is the city's fifth police chief in 10 years. His appointment this week comes after a few months of utter, well, now it's calm, but there was a storm before the storm was named Art Acevedo. Chief Manny Morales is going to join us now live. Chief Morales, great to see you. Thanks very much for your time. Hello. Good morning, Glendon uh, and Michael. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, Chief Morales, uh, uh, Art Acevedo came in to, with a mandate, he said, to shake things up. But the fact of the matter is, as far as we can tell, he pretty much tore apart your department. Your morale suffered. Do you think sort of, do you have things back on track now? Morale, has it come back up? Well, Michael, uh, um, it has been a, a long five months since I took over as interim back in October. And, and one of my first things that I wanted to take care of was kind of repair the fracture that the last administration caused, especially within the executive staff. Uh, he was very good at uh, playing uh, individuals against one another and, and the differences that they previously had. So it has taken a lot of healing. And I think we'll, we'll back on the road to uh, getting our team uh, ready and set to do what they're supposed to do, what they took an oath to do, to protect the city of Miami and keep uh, our community safe. You know, Chief, we can't really talk anything about the police department without talking about the politics of Miami, and that's kind of often framed as as a reality drama we all get to watch. In fact, the prior chief called it Game of Thrones. Um, and really, the, the night that you were then sworn in as chief, the commissioners played the theme from Godfather for you. So the question is, how much really does politics play a part in your job? And how much do you really feel tasked in keeping commissioners, who are not your direct bosses, happy? So to the average men and women, uh, the brave members of the Miami Police Department, uh, the politics is just uh, a small distraction. Um, they go each and every day out there and try to do the best, try to uh, uh, treat folks on the streets with dignity, compassion, and respect. Uh, and it doesn't play a big role in them. And those are the important individuals, right? They're the ones that go out there and they carry out the vision and the mission of the Miami Police Department uh, to keep our community safe, to restore public trust, and to make sure that uh, they're uh, safe and healthy uh, so they can do their job. So politics is not a, a, a real big deal, something that you have to be cognizant. You got to be politically savvy, just not politically involved. Yeah. Well, we should point out that you work literally for, technically, for the city manager. He hires you. You do not work directly for the mayor and commission. They can say what they like or don't like about the job you're doing, and they probably will. But the fact is uh, they, they don't have the power to hire or fire you, correct? That's correct. It's not just technically. It's per city charter. My yeah. boss is the city manager. Uh, and the mayor and, and the commissioners can make requests and direct the city manager uh, to make certain requests of the Miami Police Department, but the carry out of the enforcement of the laws, uh, the day-to-day -day strategies and operations of the Miami Police Department, that's my sole chart, according to the city charter. So uh, that's a responsibility I take extremely serious. So the, uh, as he departed, Art Acevedo, the private, um, prior chief, 
made some allegations that are now actually under investigation and because of conflict of interest in the county have been moved to the Broward State Attorney's Office. And, and what Acevedo said was that the commissioners, maybe the mayor and the commissioners, use the Miami Police Department or try to as their own security force. Have they made those requests to you? Uh, do you think those are valid? Have you filled them? Absolutely not, and I, I'm glad that I won't touch too much on it because it's open litigation, but I can tell you I've been here 28 years, uh, and I have never been in, in a position where a commissioner or any other elected official has attempted um, to give me a directive or an order. Uh, they do funnel plenty of complaints that they get from the constituents to their district offices. Uh, they are elected by our community, and our community holds them accountable for what's happening. So they do relay a lot of uh, complaints and, and issues that are impacting the community that, of course, we respond to because it's our job to keep the community safe and be responsive to the needs of, of our constituents and, and those folks that live in the city and our stakeholders as well. Yeah. Chief Morales, uh, you knew, know better than anybody, you and the men and women on your force, that there really is an epidemic of gun violence in South Florida throughout the country because of the easy access to guns, thugs, gangbangers, others, you know, trade guns on the streets. They don't go to the gun shops. They're probably just buying them, you know, back and forth among themselves. But how do you get those guns? How do you tell people, you know, teach, a young generation that being a gunslinger is not the way to go. So Michael, uh, while many of the big cities in our nation have experienced a rise in, in gun violence, we were extremely fortunate. Uh, Love did play a part of it, but the hard work of the men and women of the Miami Police Department led to a 25% uh, reduction in uh, homicides last year. So far this year, we're 40% down from that number uh, year to date. And we do see that a lot of the incidents out there uh, are not what traditionally you would imagine, right? In the, in the past, it was narcotics related, a turf war, gang going, or, or gangs disputes. Now it's more about a, a challenge to your, your manhood, your street cred. These social yeah. media beefs are, are popping up everywhere, right. and, and we need to let our young men and women understand that there's consequences for their actions. Yeah, well, you and, and you have all your differences. Right, and we know you have officers who are monitoring social media for that kind of activity. Chief Manny Morales, right. we really appreciate your time today, and good luck with a great uh, police department. Thank you, Thanks, folks. Chief. I appreciate the time, Manny. All right, up next, a Florida Holocaust survivor tells her story to future generations. South Florida has one of the largest populations of Holocaust survivors in the country. Their numbers, however, are shrinking. To preserve their stories, survivors have been recording them at the Holocaust Documentation and Education Center in Dania Beach. And this week, a crew from Steven Spielberg's Shoah Foundation at USC recorded the story of Stella Sonnenschein of Aventura. I really don't understand why there is a hate. Stella Sonnenshine of Aventura is telling her Holocaust survival story on camera. In fact, several cameras, so future generations can ask her questions. I was born in Poland, in Warsaw, in 1935. 
So when the war broke out, I was four years old. Stella is 86, but her mind is sharp and memories vivid from her childhood in Warsaw, where her family was forced to live in the Jewish ghetto by the Nazis. It was one particular little girl that was sitting always like against the wall, and the little brother was sitting, a little baby, like maybe two years old. And a few days later, she was there, and a the little boy was laying on the floor with the newspaper covered, and flies were going over him. He was dead? He was dead. In 1943, after thousands of Jews had been shipped to Treblinka, the Jews revolted. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising began. When the ghetto was burning, my father was still in ghetto, and I remember the whole sky was so red, and it was like, like, like when you see a beautiful sunset with a red sky here in Florida, that's how red it was. And I knew that my parents are there, my family. Stella's parents bribed some Polish firemen to get their uniforms and escaped. Stella was already living outside with a Gentile family, posing as an orphan named Stasia. Her 13-year-old brother, not so lucky, he was picked up on the street by the Nazis. They killed my brother that day, that night. How did you finally survive this terrible experience? So I was rolling from one family to another, like foster child. I was eight years old, nine years old, you know, and a I kept my secret. Girl. Cute little liar. <laughs> no, I was really living not only hidden physically, but hidden mentally. Can you just tell me how did you feel? Stella's story is riveting. I felt very scared. She spent three days telling it to the USC Shoah Foundation, which will turn it into an interactive biography. It really allows you to still have a conversation with the survivor or to approximate that, even after the survivors are no longer here to have those conversations. What we know by doing all of this is that this will live on in perpetuity. The world would be so much more wonderful if there would be love. Stella's spirit is undiminished by the horror she suffered in the Holocaust, but she sees disturbing parallels in Ukraine. To me, never again is really that 50 years from now, somebody should know that it existed. And if you're not careful, and if you're not stand by and, and don't say anything, it can happen again. What a story. Full disclosure, I am a board member of the Holocaust Documentation and Education Center, Player to Be. Glenna will rejoin us from Tallahassee when we come back. The budget has to go to lawmakers if this session uh, will end on time, but really the attention is focused on those big bills that frame Florida's cultural divide, and some of those go to final votes this week. We say yes! We say yes! Loud protests and more to come Monday signal the Senate debate and floor vote on the parents' rights in education bill. If the school is working with the parent and providing information needed, um, then they wouldn't have this issue. Expect a backlash to the tagline, don't say gay, from supporters who want parents to decide what their young students hear and learn in school. Speaking of which... 
The controversial education bill called Individual Freedom, and by the governor the Stop Woke Act, essentially blocks race-focused history curriculum that students might take personally. The House passed it. The Senate has just this week to do so, though it is not on the calendar as of yet. The election security bill heads to the House where it may face some changes. More voter scrutiny and stiffer penalties for violations are destined to eventually pass as one of the governor's priorities. We thank you and remember stay informed, get involved.